Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Sebastian White. Uh, he's the co-founder and CEO of Universal Quantum. We're going to talk about uh, quantum computing. So, Sebastian, thanks for coming. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so tell me about uh, Universal Quantum. Are you guys sitting on a 10,000 qubit quantum computer that operates at room temperature yet? Now we're almost there, <laughs> close. Um, but yeah, so I mean that that is that is the the goal. In fact, we we actually have more more glorious aims of of getting more to to the the million qubits. But yeah, you're right. Universal Quantum's aim is really to to build a, a new type of computer, a quantum computer. Um, and crucially, here our machines are really aimed to tackle um, the sort of problems that today's fast supercomputers would take millions of years to solve. And to do that you really need to be at the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of qubits um, level. And we at Universal Quantum feel we've, we've developed a, a number of innovations which will allow us to, to get there. And you mentioned temperature. We're actually much closer to room temperature than, than a number of, of other um, uh, approaches out there. So, you know, we're, we're making massive improvements um, to, to get to the, the sort of vision that you just described. So what's the... Um... Uh, how do you guys construct a qubit? I know that, like, I guess, I don't know which company they were using, uh, like, superconducting little loops of wire. Mm. Some are using ions. And, you know, what, what are you guys using? Yeah, so we, we use ions. So our, our qubits um, are formed of, of individual trapped ions. That's right, yeah. Okay. And, you know, and for anything, I, anything I ask you, by the way, if you can't answer or is proprietary, you know, feel free oh, to no, say absolutely. Well, there's, there's no There's no secret in the in the... Uh, in the platform that, that we use. Um, so it is trapped ions for us. Um, and trapped ions are often a, a bit more, a bit more um, lenient on the temperatures that you can operate them at. So they can be operated room temperature or, or mild cooling. And then this is the, the sort of temperature regime we're at. So compared to the superconducting qubits that you mentioned, um, they need to be close to, to absolute zero, so minus 270. And that's obviously a big advantage for, for trapped ion. So what, what atoms are they constituted from and where does the coherence come from? Yeah, so we, we actually use ytterbium ions. Um, they're, they're, they're very robust, very resilient. Um, we're, we're a big fan of, um, of ytterbium. And generally in the, in the trapped iron uh, quantum computing game, one of the big advantages of trapped ions is actually the, the, the coherence time. So for how long um, these qubits can keep that, that information um, alive, which for, for trapped ions is, is really seconds. Um, compared to microseconds, milliseconds that, that some other um, platforms have to, have to work with. Um, the key thing really, uh, and especially for us, is why it comes in when you think about how to process that information. So if you want to carry out these logic gate um, operations, which you then turn into an algorithm, that's really where, where, where a key also for us comes in, where traditionally people in the trapped iron corner computing um, architectures like to use laser beams, um, which which works really well on on small scale systems. 
but purely because we are really passionate about developing machines which have you know thousands millions of qubits we actually moved away from from the whole laser technology um and moved over to microwave technology which actually give us a little bit of an edge uh, to to scale to to much larger system sizes in a very high level way so so how are you how are you creating the coherence if you can go into a little bit of the details what what are you doing to induce uh you know the states of the atoms to uh, make them cohere. What what is it about them that's coherent? Is it spin? Is it uh, you know, what is it? Yeah, it's it's the spin for us absolutely. So so we initialize um, specific atomic states within the the ion, and uh, this qubit is then formed out of two atomic atomic states, which can be um, manipulated uh, using external radiation, so lasers, for example, or in our case, microwave radiation. And these atomic states, as it turns out, are actually quite resilient to the external environment, uh, which can often lead to, to decoherence um, or a loss of information. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice feature of ions that these atomic states, if you pick the right ones, that they're actually very well isolated from the environment. Um, the, the source of the microwaves, how do you make sure that it's, uh, it's only putting out, let's say, just the right wavelength or, or the ions you have, I guess they're... Uh even if there's variation in the, let's say, the frequency of the microwave radiation, that you'll still create the same ionic state and you won't disturb it and you know, it'll be able to go here? Yes, that, that's a really good question, actually. So one of the, the nice things about using microwaves is that it's using really well-established technology. You know, the, the sort of microwave RF technology you find in your phone, for example, this is what we, what we use. So to create a very stable, precise frequency is, is very, very simple. Uh, you can buy these boxes off the shelf and the frequency doesn't really doesn't really change. So that's a big advantage over over some of these big complicated laser systems that you that you need to that you need to use. And now in terms of the and I think what you may be referring to is crosstalk. You know you have to be careful that um, when you address a, a qubit and you you manipulate that qubit that you don't interact with any other qubits in the system. And that's usually a very big problem in in, in quantum computing. Now for us. Um, again, we've, we've got a, a very unique technique where this crosstalk largely disappears for us, actually, uh, where we can tune our qubits in such a way that they only interact with very specific external frequencies that we apply and don't see any other microwaves that we apply to the computer. It's a very neat, unique feature that we, that we have in our machines. So how do you uh, trap an ion? What's a trap? Yeah, so an, an ion trap is, is, called, uh, is trapped using... Um, a an ion trap, which is basically a mechanical structure uh, to which we apply a combination of um, static and oscillating electric fields. And if we do this right, it, it basically produces a um, a potential minimum, like a saddle potential, like an oscillating saddle potential. And because this is an electric field, it will actually interact with an ion, which is a charged atom. And this charged atom, this will basically feel this electric field and fall into this potential minimum. And that, that's basically then how we catch it and eventually cool it down uh, to actually do some, some operations with it. Okay. And then um, how many, I mean, like, I don't know, do you have an estimate of the, the error rate? You said you had reduced crosstalk a lot, but um, how many qubits on average are you able to cohere and for how long and, you know? Do you have any yeah, estimation so, of your error rates? Absolutely. So the the one thing, so the, the trapped iron community as a whole is, is actually you know holding the world record for for the um, the qubit gate fidelities um, for for the coherence time 
Um, Universal Quantum is obviously a, a newer company which is building up new machines right now. Um, it is a spin out from, from the University of Sussex where we have a number of, of prototype uh, quantum computers in, in operation and that knowledge will, will obviously be transferred over to, to Universal Quantum. But the great thing really is that, that we can build on, on, on a very good qubit that's been well developed over, over the years. So again, the, the systems that you build, um, on average, how many qubits have you been able to get to, up to where it's uh, you know, at least somewhat stable for a couple of seconds? Oh, so for, for us, the, the qubits stay around for, for hours and we can, we can have a handful of qubits um, that, that, we can, that we can work with. The, the key thing for us actually, and, and that's again a uniqueness for, for us where right now Universal Quantum is actually very much focusing on, on some of the engineering challenges to scaling up. So the, the, the quantum side is, is really well understood, um, but a challenge that, that we've always had in, in our field is, is some of the, the engineering challenges that stopped us from scaling to larger systems. And that's really where we've um, developed some, some really nice innovations where we feel we actually got a good handle on, on those engineering challenges now. And that's what we're actually developing at Universal Quantum right now. And that is what will allow our first machines to really significantly increase the, the number of ions that, that anyone's really seen in the trapped ion community so far, which is tens of cubes. But before we get to the engineering challenges, has anyone using trapped ions noticed anything about what the coherence looks like? You know, like, uh, again, in most systems, it's so short-lived, that's a problem. But if it goes on for seconds or even minutes or hours, like, are there fluctuations in it? Is there anything, any of the properties of the coherence that are noted to be changing over time? Yeah, so like, like any other quantum system, we, we, we do um, have this, this decoherence. Um, but like I said at the, the beginning as well, it, it's, it, it's reasonably well understood. It, it can most certainly, the coherence can, uh, can stay for, for, for seconds. Uh, in fact, some people have measured minutes and, and beyond, depending on, on the exact um, experimental implementation. So, and the other thing to also mention is the, the trapped iron itself stays around for, for a very long time. You can keep these things for, for hours. And then you're thinking about the, the, the coherence internally while you have them. And, and, and that's, you know, that's second. So, so that's, we would love it to be, to be even better, but comparably speaking to, to other quantum computing platforms, it, it's really quite leading. Well, I'm saying, uh, if you're coherent for a long period of time or a significant period, you may be able to observe decoherence happening, let's say on like a, you know, a microsecond by microsecond basis or picosecond by picosecond basis. And maybe in that, you know, by, by watching decoherence happen, you would learn something about the process by which it happens that other systems couldn't see because it happens quote unquote too fast. I wonder if anyone's, I know that you're trying to make a commercially viable quantum computing yeah. system, but for yeah. the for the raw physics of it, do you have people that are looking at that, or is that for others to look at? Not us internally. We we always like to understand the sources of decoherence. That's really important to us. So, what external noise um, source may may be the cause of our uh, decoherence? But that that's really how far we how far we push that. Yeah, because I was just wondering if the decoherence itself. The, the behavior of it essentially is quantized if it happens in like uh, steps instead of just a smooth transition to decoherence. But it sounds like that's, uh, you know, that's another area of focus. So w what are some of the engineering challenges that you're working on right now? So it, it's, it's very much integration. So at University Quantum, we really believe that 
in order to to scale to larger system sizes, you need to integrate um, all of the key um, technologies onto a chip, um, and and that's really what what we're mastering uh, at the moment. So traditionally, if you were to go into a trapped iron corner computing lab, so to speak, right now, you would see lots of control devices, um, boxes sitting around in the lab, all controlling this this small quantum system. And what we're really doing is we're developing custom chips, uh, which in a way act as standalone mini quantum computers that we can connect together in a in a tile form to, to really scale up to in principle arbitrary size. Um, that, that's the sort of high level thing. We've obviously got a lot of work to do there, but for us, it's integration, integration, integration. Well, even though parts of the system are so tiny, you know, the ions themselves, um, you need, again, on traditional quantum computers, you need gigantic refrigeration. And it's funny how some of it's so macroscopic for something that's so, you know, yeah, so small. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and you're absolutely right. And that, that is sometimes an issue. You know, if, if you look at, um, I mean, you will have seen some of the pictures as well from superconducting cubic corner computers. You've got this huge dilution refrigerator cooling down this really small chip where, where some of these quantum operations are happening. And if you then think about, well, okay, what would a corner computer at the size of a million qubits look like? You very quickly get very, very worried. And because for, for us, we're so passionate about building those sort of corner computers, we really tried to tackle um, that sort of size and engineering overhead um, that, that is there um, by just integrating it all onto, onto a chip. Yeah, it, was, it seems like you'd, uh, you'd benefit from having a lot of things at a similar scale instead of huge and, you know, microscopic. So, um, what about the orientation of the, uh, the ions to each other? Is it, um, I mean, is it two-dimensional right now? Will it go to three-dimensional? Is there a certain orientation that may make it more beneficial or work better as you scale? Yeah, we, we work in, in a two-dimensional plane, absolutely. So, so we can move these, these ions around. So, so we have very precise control over their, their position, for example, and, and we can move them around almost, almost at will, which is, which is absolutely critical when you think about uh, connectivity, for example. So if you want to have different qubits interacting within the quantum computer, we can simply move them around to, um, to the right location to interact with each other. So that, that's really important and, and a big advantage of, of trapped ions. But we, we want to do this in, in two dimensions. We're not, not as daring enough to, to push this to three dimensions. Well, as you get to more and more qubits, though, you'll essentially have, you know, interior ions and exterior ones, at least in a two-dimensional way. Um, is there a very different shielding requirements or behavior for the most interior ones versus the ones on the edge? Shielding from? You know, from, uh, I guess, from, from disturbance, from perturbation, you know, you can get, uh, if it's two-dimensional, you can get the microwaves um, to the qubits without, you know, without uh, getting in the way of other ones, which is great. But is there any interaction or uh, anything that needs to be done special to, let's say, the qubits in the middle versus the ones on the edge? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. No, not really. Um, so so that, that's, that's part of the, the niceness of our system. Um, that you know we, we should once we can we kind of have worked out a unit cell um, of the quantum computer we should be able to just naturally scale up uh, without running into into additional problems provided you have solved the integration problem and that's always that 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 big if um, that you need to get you need to get right otherwise you will run into um, into problems for example to get the signals into the center 
qubits compared to the outside ones. And this is one of the, the many reasons why we're so, so passionate about dealing with the integration right now so that we have a clear path to, to scaling up. And at that point, when that integration work is complete, you should see a significant increase in our qubit numbers very, very quickly because it, it's not the case anymore. We've doubled the qubit numbers and now we need to develop a completely different system to double it again. It should just be more of the same. And that's absolutely key for us and, and, and part of our, our sort of longer term strategy. Yeah, what about the distance between um, you know, trapped ions? Uh, what's the, have you gotten to the minimum distance? And, you know, will that help you with, uh, with integration? Like how far apart are they right now? No, that, that's not a, a big game. So when, when, two, when we bring two qubits together, they're normally separated by about a few micrometers. Um, that, that is not something we're, we're necessarily pushing. Um, I think that's, that's okay for, from a size scale. Um, it, it's more the, the control electronics, um, the, the whole control apparatus that sits around that, which is what we need to miniaturize significantly to match that sort of footprint um, of, of the ions sitting on top. So what kind of, um, as you expand, are there different algorithms you're going to need to implement in order to make it work? Like do the algorithms that exist right now, will they work on you know, a system with a few number of qubits versus a lot? Or do you need new algorithms to take advantage of uh, you know, more powerful systems? That's a great question. So the, there's obviously a lot of algorithm work going on and uh, you know, it starts at the highest level, um, which then needs to be um, compiled down into the, the lower level uh, control signals that actually operate our, our quantum computers. And there's a lot of work that, that goes into that to translate that into the right way. Um, and also the other way around, where an algorithm maybe needs to be optimized to make use of the uniqueness um, of our particular quantum computer or someone else's quantum computer. So a lot of work needs to go into that software stack, so to speak to really squeeze the most out of the quantum computers we have now and will have for the next, for the next few years. And that's a whole, whole area of itself, um, you know, where in many ways, um, you know, areas like NISC come into, uh, where people really focus on squeezing the most out of currently available, available quantum computers to get us through this current phase until we get to error-corrected quantum computers, where they can really solve you know, most of the, the problems that we have out there and can run any of the algorithms that people have come up with so far. So what does this look like a few years in the future? Will it, you know, will um, <clears throat> quantum computers be integrated with traditional ones and, you know, will they work together? Or, you know, a quantum computer may operate, let's say, as a standalone, but from my understanding, there's certain select algorithms and problems it's good for. Well, our current computers are good for other ones, uh, perhaps an integration of the two would be the most Absolutely. powerful. Yeah, that, that's, I, I, I believe so. Um, I, I think the, the, the sort of conventional computer and a quantum computer working together is, is, is most certainly the way forward um, for, for the foreseeable future. And even long-term, there, there are most certainly many tasks which uh, a conventional computer is far better and more efficient at, at solving. Um, but there is that, that big subset of problems which you really only can solve using a, a quantum computer. So we need both. It's most certainly not the case that a quantum computer will replace a conventional computer. So in the future, whenever this is, um, we'll probably have, uh, I guess, hybrid computers where certain functions will be done classically and certain ones will be done by the quantum uh, mm. part of the computer. Is that what yeah. you foresee? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you could imagine this sort of case where you, you run a, a part of a problem that you like solving on a conventional computer, and then it gets to a bottleneck where it's just really, really hard. You outsource that to a quantum computer, maybe via the cloud, for example. It does its bit, 
sends you back your progression, your conventional computer carries on. Absolutely. So uh, can you think of any particular like applications of what, uh, what this would be beneficial for? Well, I mean, I think quantum computing in general is, is, is already understood to, you know, most likely have a very big impact on the pharmaceutical industry, developing new, new drugs, um, helping with developing new materials in big data, machine learning, um, that there are big application areas in, in that space. It, it really does go across, across the sector. And I think one thing to, to really bear in mind is that I really feel we haven't even found the killer application for quantum computing yet. Even though we already know of a lot of great applications, there's a lot more to come. You know, if you think about how many, how many quantum algorithm developers there are in the world right now, how many people are really thinking about applications compared to conventional computing, it's, you know, there's a lot more to, to be discovered there. And that is part of what makes this so exciting. We already know a lot. We already know enough to make it worth the work that we're going to go through. But there's a lot more to be, to be discovered, similar to how conventional computers started up in, in the 40s, 50s, etc. Are there any particular problems that in the industry are well known that uh, people will be really super excited to be able to solve with quantum computers? I mean, personally, I'm, I, I am really excited about the, the, the pharmaceutical space purely because I'm, I'm really excited about having a big impact on society. And I think the, in, in the drug discovery space, there's, there's a lot of room for, for improvement uh, once we have a, you know, a, a platform which can really understand chemical reactions better and, and, and so on. And I think that that is a really high impact route quantum computers can, can open up. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. Uh, but in the end of the day, we're really developing a resource for, for, for people to use in the end. Uh, and I'm sure that it will be useful for a wide variety of, of different applications. But we still have a way to go. That, that's the important thing to, to remember as well. We're not quite, not quite there yet. Yeah, so what do the next five years look like for Universal Quantum? What do you think you'll be able to accomplish? Yeah, I, I can't go into, into super much detail there, but um, you, you can most certainly imagine that um, we will have machines available for, for, for the general public, for, for our partners, um, you know, using a technology where we can really, a technology solution where we can really say um, that we will very soon afterwards be scaling up significantly on the, on the qubit numbers. I think that's, that's absolutely critical that people will be developing um, use cases on our machines um, where we can say, look, you know, here's a very clear path to, to a million qubits. We won't be there in five years' time, but we will most certainly have machines which will use technology solutions, which naturally will get us to the million qubits much faster than anyone else would. Well, very cool. So what's the best way for people to find out more and, and keep tabs on your progress? Yeah, definitely um, go into, into universalquantum.com. Um, there's a website there where you can, you can keep in touch. You can, um, you, know, you can get in touch with us. Um, find out more. Absolutely. That's, that's the best way to, um, or follow us on, on, on LinkedIn, for example. Uh, but the website is really a good place to start. Okay. Well, very good, Sebastian. Thanks for coming. And so, you know, uh, it'd be very interesting to see what comes of it. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. 
Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.